0: Welcome to this interview with psychologist and science historian Frank Salloway. Frank is known for his legendary book about Sigmund Freud from 1979 called Freud, Biologist of the Mind. If you haven't had the chance to read it, I highly recommend that you do. In addition to his work on Freud, Frank is also famous for his research on the life and theories of Charles Darwin, which is a subject we actually touch upon briefly during this conversation. This interview was conducted for a four-part documentary in Swedish on Sigmund Freud. And if you want to know more about Freud, make sure you listen to my interview with Frederick Cruz in the previous episode, which also was part of my documentary. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at C underscore Dahlström. Enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>
1: In your book, uh, you write that Freud's uh, writings are possibly the most important body of thought committed to paper in the 20th century. How did you yourself and others view Freud in the 1970s when you wrote your book?
2: Um, well, that that statement is a pretty good reflection of how Freud was seen in the 1970s, um, when when you uh, sent me that quotation, I, I I sort of looked at it and I said, did I really say that? <laughs> it sounded more like I, I must have been quoting someone else because I I don't think I would have ever quite said that myself, given that my book was on Freud was was meant to be um, critical of of Freud and, uh, t- and to be a kind of a revision of our understanding of Freud um and then you you kindly <laughs> sent me the page reference and i went back so it was philip reef who, who said that um and i noticed actually i, I said uh, that, uh, that 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 uh, i i prefaced that quotation by saying possibly um and i think today looking back i would not have said possibly <laughs> i would have found some more critical way to to say it however that that uh, quotation really does sort of sum up how things were in the late 1970s with freud writing quite high uh, you know his 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 stock was was very valuable back in those days and there was a kind of a watershed that took place in uh the 1970s. In part, I think it began with Henry Ellenberger's discovery uh, of the unconscious, which is a marvelous book, which had um, quite an interesting sort of general revision of, of how one sees Freud and, um, and, and in some ways sort of whittled away at the Freud legend. For example, one of the things he emphasized was that Freud's claims that he was sort of a uh, an outcast and nobody recognized his view it was just totally wrong if you went back and, and, and read read the actual literature Freud was being quoted and this and that. So. um, uh, So I I was sort of part of that wave and looking back, I'm actually quite grateful that I re- that I got interested in Freud and wrote my book when I did, because uh, by the you know, in the next 10 years, the the, the revision was sort of over. And if you were then publishing on Freud, you were kind of beating a dead horse in, in my opinion. Um, I, I have great admiration for Fred Cruz. Um, but, but his wonderful book on, on the problems with the case histories and going back to read the original correspondence with his, his, his wife and fiance. Um, it, it really doesn't add anything to what we know, which is that Freud in many ways was fundamentally wrong, that he distorted a lot of, uh, the information about the case histories and so forth. So um, I'd have to say that that quotation that you gave uh, sort of sums the vision of Freud uh, in the in the general public quite nicely at the time I published my book, which was 1979. And uh, if I could sort of be so bold, I would say it was, it was all downhill after that for Freud.
1: Yeah, and you said uh, more recently in an interview that you have not the slightest doubt that psychoanalysis is a pseudoscience today. Uh, How has your perception of Freud changed over time and and why?
3: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Well, the the one sort of significant change in my views about Freud, um, I sort of spelled out in a 1991 article on Freud's case histories. Um, and let me put this in a broader context. Um, after my book came out in 1979, um, Throughout the, the sort of 1980s, a whole bunch of publications came out on the case histories, uh, revealing things that we really hadn't entirely known before. Um, one was Karen Obholzer's book on the Wolfman, for example, and Patrick Mahoney writing on the Schraber case history and so forth. And the sort of some gist of, of that literature um, in each individual sort of case history was. Uh, a a lesson in how, how the the sort of extensive interpretive liberties that Freud took um in his case histories uh it, when he published them compared to what the patients were actually telling him uh Upholster's book is, is is quite interesting because the wolfman lived long enough to basically say Freud's representation of his his sort of of cure was just all wrong, he was never cured, and um, that he never believed Freud's own interpretation, and uh, just detail after detail um, makes you realize the arbitrary nature of the interpretations that went on in the case histories. And so, um, and the way this affected me was, my book was written... Mostly about Freud as a theorist, Uh, I didn't really focus on the case histories in particular, and so I treated Freud. uh, My book on Freud was a little bit the way you would write a book about Aristotle, and um, and I say this because it raises a very important historiographical issue. Um, I was trained in the history of science, and one of the great sins in the history of science is something we call Whiggish history. Uh, It comes from the term Whig represents the liberals in British politics. And Whiggish history is viewed as that form of history that sees the progress of history to the liberal present and views everything else as a kind of um, uh, unfortunate departure from that. So, for example, um, a, a Whiggish historian would never write a book on Failed theories because that was all a waste of time. Those theories are, are uninteresting. Um, and another aspect of, of, of Whiggish history is you make um, strong pronouncements about the errors of theories. Now, if I were to write a book about Aristotle from the perspective of Whiggish history, I could do a real job on just how stupid Aristotle was. For example, his theory of, of sexual um, uh, development was that uh the, the the males were created in the uterus uh, according to greater heat in the uterus and that the male contributed the form and, and the female only contributed the matter and the form was more superior to the matter um well that that theory is just you know it's just totally wrong so you could write a book about how how ignorant aristotle was or Um, as we were sort of taught in the history of science, you would shed that Whiggish history view and just try to understand Aristotle in terms of his times and the rather impressive um, uh, theories of logic that he had that led him to reconstruct the world in that way. And that would be a a much fairer and way more interesting book about Aristotle, who really was for his time a, a kind of a genius. And that was my attitude toward Freud. I wasn't sort of out to uh, the, the way some modern critics, including Fred Cruz, I um, wasn't sort of out to to sort of destroy his reputation or whatever. I wanted to understand him in the context of, of the late nineteenth century. And although my book was quite critical of Freud in terms of his uh, adoption of non-Darwinian perspectives and, and the errors that introduced into psychoanalysis, um, I didn't particularly focus on him in a way that would be sort of judgmental about his abilities as a scientist. Now, that having been said, what the case histories revealed was that um, his sort of um, penchant toward speculation and disrespect for the hypothetical deductive method, that is to say, testing your theories, just jumped out at you in the case histories. And the case histories really sort of reveal that Freud wasn't a very good scientist, and so when I wrote the paper I did on the case histories in 1990, 1991, I really reviewed that as sort of a chapter I should have included in the book because um, Whiggish history aside, it does place Freud in uh, a, a much more critical light as someone who fundamentally didn't understand the basic principles of science.
1: Yeah, and besides the case histories, I heard you talk in another interview, or or perhaps read somewhere that that you uh, besides that that the other part of it, why you lost faith in him in some sense, is that uh, psychoanalysis was largely based on biological theories from the nineteenth century, which uh, of course you write a lot about that in your book too, but the, the, uh, those theories. Have since been shown to be incorrect. Can you describe, what very briefly, what those theories were and and how Freud used them?
2: Yeah, yeah, that that was really the basic the thesis of my uh, of my book on Freud. Um, there are really sort of two sets of assumptions that Freud adopted from. The biology of his times. And that's very important for people to recognize. Freud was trained as a biologist. He was. Uh, he, he he was. About 40 years old and had had a decade of, of research under his belt as a biologist before he ever began doing anything like psychoanalysis, and he was a, a world's authority on childhood cerebral paralysis, and he'd written papers on the the, the phylogenetic uh, um, evolution of the nervous system of the crayfish and and uh, another fish called Amocetes, he, I think it was the name. So he he was a he was a sort of a um, evolutionary biologist of sorts. And the most critical assumptions that he adopted from this background in biology were, first of all, the sort of the conservation of energy. This is a principle set forth by Hermann Helmholtz and others in the late 19th century. And it's basically, if you've got energy, it can't go away. It's conserved. So it's got to go somewhere. And what Freud did is to interpret neurotic symptoms as, um, a form of energy, for example, libido, sexual energy, that isn't being expressed in a healthy way through sexual intercourse. Uh, it's being blocked in some way by repression or, um, you know, phobias or whatever, and maybe even made unconscious so the patient doesn't even recognize the, the the urge is there. But But that energy has to be conserved. And where does it go? It goes into neurotic symptoms that the patient doesn't understand. That's Helmholtz's theory of the conservation of energy. Well, we know today that's just totally wrong. That's not the way, um, the physiology of the human body or the human brain works. So that's a pretty fundamentally wrong assumption that undermines a lot of uh, Freud's interpretation of neurotic symptoms and also the way, um, dreams work. Now, the other set of assumptions that were, um, sort of fatal to Freud or very uh, harmful to the edifice that he created, come from um, a Darwinian, sort of a German-Darwinian, a German interpretation of, of such Darwinian theory through a man named Ernst Haeckel. Uh, Haeckel was famous for developing what's, what's known as the biogenetic law. That is the notion that ontogeny, childhood, recapitulates phylogeny and this notion comes from the fact that if you if you look at embryos of our distant ancestors we pass through embryo, embryologically if you look at a human embryo it looks like it looks like the embryo of a of a species that existed 100 million years ago and what heckel um, didn't understand is that that recapitulation process is not a recapitulation of the adult stages of our ancestors it's merely a traveling embryologically along the same pathways um, in 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 sort of in the embryos until natural selection has made changes in those embryos. It has, it has nothing to do with compressing the adulthood of an ancestor back into the embryo, but that, that's the way um, Heckel understood it, and Freud adopted that principle, hook line and sinker, from Heckel. And where did it lead him? Well, if you believe that the child is recapitulating the history of the race, you have to also believe the child is recapitulating the sexual history of the race. And it's recapitulating the sexual stages of our adult ancestors. Well, if you go back and look at the entire evolution of sexuality, about which uh, Heckel and others had written... Sexual evolution underwent three basic stages. The first was a kind of an organism called a gastrea, which was just a bunch of cells and a sac. And the sac had an orifice, and the orifice is essentially the mouth. Um, And that is uh, the oral stage of sexuality. Now, as evolution proceeded, the gastrea evolved another opening namely the anus, to allow it to pass material through its mouth, through its gut, and out the other end. And that becomes uh, the anal stage of, of sexuality, because um, primitive genitalia they then began to evolve in that region. And the third stage of, of sexual evolution is the evolution of genitalia. So according to that theory, you would believe the child must go through an oral, an anal, and a genital stage, and that's Freud's theory of psychosexuality. It it makes absolutely no sense um, based on anything other than Heckel's biogenetic law. Now, the problem with that is the the biogenetic law is just wrong. And uh, and Freud, the biogenetic law also depends on a belief in Lamarckian inheritance, the inheritance of acquired characteristics, because the only way you can compress Adult stages into back into the sort of embryological development is through some sort of inheritance of the memories and experiences of the adults um, that then get into the genome and then they through repetition embryological repetition somehow they get uh, pushed back earlier and earlier into the embryo. So Freud literally believed that that the child recapitulates the memory of its ancestors having slayed the primeval father uh, in competition for sexual mates, and that that's the Oedipus complex. It's a it's an inborn genetic endowment, which is why, in psychoanalytic theory, it doesn't matter what culture you're born in. These are universal stages. Um, when Freud was criticized by one of his followers in a, in a, in a book, I think it was uh, Wilhelm Steckel, um, that Freud's ideas are probably just unique to Viennese neurotics. Freud wrote in the margin of his copy of Wilhelm Steckel's book, Und die fulgenise, which means, and what of phylogeny? He's basically saying, no, it's not just, uh, you know, Viennese neurotics. These principles, my psychosexual stages, are universal because they are wired phylogenetically into the genome and all that's based on, on a set of false assumptions so that was one of the major arguments that i had in in my book that psychoanalysis was a psychobiology and the psychobiology is wrong and so the foundations of the whole theory are are faulty and if you build a building with faulty foundations it's are going to fall down
1: yeah uh, and correct me if if I'm wrong here, but I, I seem to remember that uh, somewhere you you wrote that uh, some of these theories or parts of them, at least, were already known to be false at the time. Is do I remember correctly? Or
2: uh, yes, very good point. Um, uh, the 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 theory of Lamarckian inheritance. Uh, which is absolutely fundamentally necessary for the biogenetic law to work, um, was being questioned already by the 1880s, so 20 years before psychoanalysis arose. And by the late 1920s, nobody believed in Lamarckian inheritance any longer. Um, at that time, Ernest Jones confronted Freud about this. Uh, Ernest Jones was a, a British psychoanalyst follower. And he knew enough about evolutionary biology to know that, that Lamarckian inheritance was out and that psychoanalysis was dependent on it. And Freud and he needed to sort of do something about this. And Freud responded, no, we don't. We have our own science, which is just a, from a, you know, scientific point of view, it, it's just putting blinders on to, um, the self corrective process or the corrective process. That, that That we value in science, that you you know you, you test your hypotheses, and when they're found to be wrong, you throw them out well Freud, Freud wasn't willing to do that
1: no uh, Charles Darwin was one of the theorists who inspired Freud and the entire scientific community at the time, and in a chapter of your book, Darwin and his Bears, you compared the uh, two of them in a funny way. What do you think can be learned from comparing Freud to Darwin?
2: Well, the um, the point of that chapter in my book was was really to highlight um, the fundamental difference in scientific methodology that distinguished the work of Darwin, which is um, uh, you know more valued today than it even was in Darwin's own lifetime. You could say versus um, the fate of Freud in psychoanalytic history. Uh, Darwin was perhaps as superb an exemplar as you could find in science of someone who constantly subjected his theoretical assumptions to questioning and constantly looked for contradictory evidence that, that might refute those viewpoints. Um, In his autobiography, he writes about how he had a a golden rule, which was to immediately write down negative facts that contradict your theories, because if you don't do that, you tend to forget them. You know, there's a a selective bias for just remembering everything you agree with and forgetting everything you don't, which is essentially what what Freud did. Um, And so um, in in this chapter in the book, which is focused on the biogenetic law, um, which, uh, as i just explained, is, is, is fundamentally wrong and so forth. Um, w- one of the imaginary bears that's assisting uh, Freud um, ends up corresponding with the famous German scientist Ernst Hackel, and he, he gets a bunch of um, poisonous uh, heckle berries from, from Um But he doesn't understand that they're poisonous, and he begins to eat them and he starts to recapitulate the memories, the phylogenetic memories of his his ancestors, and and in a sense becomes sort of a, a convert to Freud's own theories about how phylogenetic memories become repressed. And then he starts insisting that that Darwin and all the other bears in the story who are helping Darwin all all undergo what he calls psychoanalysis. And the the contrast between Freud and Darwin is then brought out at the end of the chapter. Where Darwin and the other bears get together and say, "This, what's what's going on here? This is crazy!" Every time Carl uh, von von Bear analyzes us, and we have a, a we you know, we give him details from our dreams, um, he, he he sort of it, it all ends up fitting his theory. Nothing refutes it, and it's then that they realize something's wrong, and then they find a letter from Ernst Tackle where he writes about the Hackleberries and mentions their, po- their poison. And uh, Karl Lenz from there didn't know enough German to catch on to that. So they get him off the the Hegelberries and he comes back to his senses. So that chapter was really a parody of the difference between a scientist who fundamentally believed in the principle that you have to test your theories and subject them to potential refutation versus a scientist whose work failed because he didn't do that.
1: A common objection when someone criticizes Freud is that you have to compare him to contemporary scientists. When I read about other contemporary researchers like Darwin, but others too, many of them uh, seem to have been, I mean, surprisingly thorough, systematic, and aware of biases and so forth. Not all of them, of course, but uh, how well do you think Freud compares to other famous scientists from his era?
2: Um, well, I, I think poorly. Um, I, I'll, I'll have to say this: you can find other other scientists in the nineteenth century who shared Freud's penchant for um, protecting their scientific beliefs, uh, or for or or for endorsing a lot of speculative ideas. Ernst Haeckel, by the way, uh, was a good choice for that chapter in Darwin and his bears because he was famous for having a kind of grandiose speculative theories about the cosmos and the world and so forth. Uh, that was not Darwin's dish of tea, but it was much closer to, to Freud's, um, sort of grandiose, um, conception of his own theories. Remember Freud actually said there have been three great revolutions in the history of science, uh, when Copernicus overthrew the, you know, threw out the notion that that the Earth was the center of the universe. When Darwin demoted man to just another animal, and then finally when psychoanalysis revealed that um, mankind isn't isn't um, sort of in charge of its own conscious mind, that there's an unconscious that that sort of governs us too um that that's pretty grandiose darwin would have never gotten within a mile of, of that kind of statement and um and so you can you can go back and you can find lots of scientists who um who were devoted to uh, the principles that darwin was namely um subjecting your ideas to potential refutation Looking for negative evidence and so forth, you can find others who were more similar to um, to Freud. Although I think Freud is something of an outlier. Um, if we wanted to look for analogues to Freud, we'd probably go back and look at those scientists who developed pseudosciences of sorts, so mesmerism and mesmer and the theory of mesmerism, uh, or um, or Gaul's theory of phrenology. Those would be sort of the analogs of of Freud in the 19th century. Um, People who developed theories that that, that later sort of collapsed because they just didn't hold water. Um, There's one other interesting thing about Freud that's worth saying. He was trained in sort of neurophysiology. And in, in neurophysiology, you don't really do experiments. You just dissect things and you write stuff up. And then you give a kind of a narrative account to what you've done. Um, you're not really on a day-to-day basis doing using the scientific method a lot. You're not doing experiments. Um, you're more like a naturalist, just sort of describing things and looking for uh, patterns uh, that are that are consistent. What's in, What's impressive about Darwin is he was in the same the same boat of of um, being a a natural historian where you think you couldn't do experiments. But in fact, Darwin is famous for all the experiments he managed, in fact, to do. So I'll give you just an example. Uh, The origin of species is filled with examples of experiments that he thought up to test his ideas. And you wouldn't think, well, how do you do an experiment back in the 19th century that tests evolutionary ideas? Well, here's one. Um, Darwin knew that he had to be able to explain how... Things like land snails, which are killed by seawater, could possibly get to oceanic islands that are a thousand miles from a continent. Uh, Land snails are instantly killed by seawater. And if he couldn't explain how vulnerable organisms like that could get to oceanic islands, then he couldn't, he couldn't explain how evolution has worked there. Well, what did Darwin do? Um, he, got a whole bunch of land snails and began immersing them in salt water for different periods of time. And he discovered somewhat to his chagrin, they all died, Uh, but he kept at it. And then he finally discovered that land snails at a certain point in their, in their lives, estivate or hibernate. They seal off their opening aperture with a kind of a cement, and go into hibernation. Some land snails can hibernate for up to three years. And when they're in that state of hibernation, um, you can put them in salt water and they'll be alive, you know, a month or two later. Well, that was more than enough time for a land snail to drift on, say, a, a log from the coast of South America to the Galapagos Islands or to Hawaii. And that solved Darwin's problem. Well, he was always doing experiments like that. He he would he he would get uh, ducks from the wild, capture them, and scrape the mud off their feet, and see how many seeds grew from the mud. And so, uh, even though Darwin was trained in in a, a kind of a narrative uh, discipline of natural history, where you write up and describe your animals, and you'd think you could have a whole career doing that without ever doing an experiment, he found ways to do experiments. Uh, I don't think Freud ever did a single experiment in his life.
1: Um, In your text on Freud's case histories, you you write that Freud was unwilling to describe the psychoanalytic method in detail, uh, that the cases were only intended as appetizers, so to say. Uh, Why did he do that?
3: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
2: I think it's very, very clear that Freud was not just reluctant to reveal the details of the psychoanalytic method, but 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 strongly opposed to doing it. Um, and yet um he had to sort of pretend he was doing that or or it wouldn't be taken seriously as a scientist so he, he he he's famous for publishing um unsuccessful case histories where you can't really see how the method would bring you to uh, a cure for the patient and and then not giving a lot of detail about how how that method is is actually being employed in the case history um there are a lot of statements by psychoanalysts themselves saying from freud's case histories you really can't learn how to do psychoanalysis So, what, what, what's going on here? Normally, if a scientist developed, um, a whole new field of research based on a new method, like a new kind of vaccine or a a new, uh, a new anything, they would be very anxious to make the method known so that people would believe, uh, what they were doing. Well, in Freud's case, um, by sort of privatizing the training of psychoanalysts. Uh, he and and his fellow psychoanalysts ended up financially controlling who who could learn about it. They ha- had to come to him for a training analysis. So it's actually kind of a a good gimmick for for making money. You want to be a psychoanalyst? I can't give you a paper on the subject, but but come and be my patient for a year and give give me a lot of money. And you'll sort of learn how to do it. But then since nothing is ever written down by any of these people, um, it, it becomes a kind of a like a secret society's um, wisdom that's never revealed to the public. And so psychoanalysis became a kind of privatized science uh, in in the 1915, 1915, 1920. Um, and. If you wanted to learn about it, you had to undergo a training analysis. And in the training analysis, the essence of a training analysis was to get rid of all your doubts about psychoanalytic theory, not to test the theory, but, but to overcome all your, um, all your repressions that might make you doubt the truth of the theory. It's really a kind of an indoctrination. So, um, I think you could say uh, the bottom line was that Freud found and his followers found that Keeping the psychoanalytic method secret was both financially um, advantageous and, at the same time, it guarded their their theories and methods from being used to refute their theories by, by critics, which is really, from the perspective of somebody within the psychoanalytic movement, seems like a great idea, but from the perspective of science, it's a horrible idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, you wrote about it in the case histories paper, I think, and and I, I actually never, even if I read like fifty books on Freud in dip- different capacities, I never re- realized that that was the case. I, I, I for some reason, I've, I just thought that they were. Uh, that the, the academy, the universities, uh, kept a distance from them rather than the other way around. But it all makes sense when you write about it.
2: Yeah. There's a, there's an interesting reference at some point where one of the, one of the disciples was sort of saying, um, we, we should, we should be putting people in medical schools. And and Freud says, no, 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 we 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 have to keep sort of control over this. He was not for having psychoanalysis being part of university curriculums. He wanted to have his own, in a sense, psychoanalytic institutes, privatized uh, science. Imagine if you had a new theory of, um, l- let's just say you're a little bit wacko and you claim you've developed, uh, you've discovered a new element. Um, but instead of subjecting that to, to testing in universities and among other scientists, you just create your new institute of strontiology. That's your new element. <laughs> and then you, you recruit people to believe this element exists. Well, that, that's not science. Um, uh, no. Uh,
1: even, um, You mentioned the the Wolfman uh, case earlier, but even before the Freud Fleece letters that were published in 1985, uh, Karin Obholzer's interviews with a Wolfman were published in 1982. How significant would you say that those particular interviews were in changing your own and others' perception of Freud?
2: Um yeah they were they were important by the way the the police correspondence was published in full in nineteen eighty five but we had a kind of a boulderized edition from um the the nineteen fifties um and actually, it's worth saying something about that before I try to answer your other question um What was interesting about that that boulderized edition is they they claimed that they were only publishing those letters of scientific interest. But in fact, they systematically eliminated from the boulderized edition um, anything touching on on Freud's endorsement of Fleece's biological ideas, uh, which included the notion that all human beings are governed by two uh, cycles, a sexual cycle of 28 days and a, a female cycle and a male cycle of 23 days. And Fleece had, had tried to analyze the entire history of the world and and um people's uh, uh, the outcome of, of diseases and death and people all in terms of multiples of these um 23 and 28 day periods all that got eliminated from the published version um uh, at least until 1985 but um what what that did was to hide how close the the collaboration was between Freud and Fleece, because Freud really believed those ideas. And it turned out that because Fleece believed that everything was being driven by these sexual rhythms—remember, a 28-day cycle is a sexual um, rhythm—he also believed that infants were sexual, and he documented erections in his newborn son prior to of Freud's so-called discovery of infantile sexuality, and was telling Freud all about this. So the notion that Freud discovered infantile sexuality by analyzing his own childhood memories is just is just flat out wrong. Um, and the the edition of the of the Fleece correspondence helped to hide that fact. Uh, although I was able to get around it by actually just going back and reading Fleece's own publications and seeing uh, what he was up to. Um so uh so enough on 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 that issue the um uh remind me again what was the, what was the second issue we were talking about
1: uh, sorry it was about uh, Colin oldholzer's interviews and how significant uh... oh yeah
2: yes in the partly in in the in the 1970s but really um in the early and mid 1980s there was a almost an avalanche of new papers that came out just analyzing the case histories. So I've mentioned Karen Obholzer's book. Um but there were there were lots of new papers on um the Ratman case history, uh, the Schreiber case history, the the Dora case history and so forth. And uh most of that stuff just wasn't available when I published my, my own book on Freud and that's why um the paper I later wrote on the case history, so essentially it wasn't a chapter in my, my earlier book. Um, and that um, that was part of the watershed from, from 1970 to 1980, in which Freud Freud's stock in the world, Freud's intellectual stock really went downhill um, in terms of how he was perceived as a a, a scientist and a thinker. And uh, as I as I said, it's the, it's the details in those case histories of just how blatantly Freud disregards the evidence. I mean, he falsifies facts in the case histories. He'll tell you that some event happened in the patient's life at some point of time uh, because it makes the story better, and and then some sleuth goes back and finds out it happened way later when it when it doesn't fit the pattern. Um, that Freud is arguing for, that, that that favors his theoretical interpretation. So there's a lot of uh, I'm not sure we would call it outright lying. Maybe it's self delusion, where Freud is just um, seeing the evidence that fits the theories and disregarding the evidence that doesn't fit the theories. And it was only when we when when people like Abholzer got hold of the original patient. Or we found, uh, in one case, we found the process notes, uh, the original manuscript notes for a case history, as opposed to Freud's later publication of what went on in that. That we could just see all of these um, blatant disregarding of, um, of of the evidence as it emerged in the case histories, and it was kind of a twisting it in the published versions. So that really uh, that really hurt Freud's reputation, and it it hurt it in In the sense that uh, it's one thing to analyze Freudian theory as a theoretical construct and to show that it conflicts with um, currently accepted scientific theory. That's sort of what I did in my 1979 book. It's a whole other thing to show that the whole methodology by which Freud arrived at anything was just blatantly unscientific. And so that's what we... um, we got in the 1980s through this sort of plethora of publications that concentrated on the case histories
1: yeah and um uh, you uh, have studied the, the lives of many eminent scientists and the uh, legends surrounding them, uh, but you have stated that you will unhesitatingly say that no legend in the history of science has ever been developed in such elaborate ways as the legend fostered by psychoanalysts about its own origins. Um, In what sense?
2: Um, Yeah, I still believe that statement is true, and it's true for the following reasons. Um, There are a lot of uh, famous myths in the history of science, some of which I've, I've debunked myself, like the, the myth that Darwin was converted to evolution in the Galapagos Islands, or that the famous Darwin's finches inspired his theory of natural selection. Um, I, I've written a lot about that. And other historians of science have sort of debunked the myth that Galileo dropped things off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, or that Newton you know, was sitting under a tree and an apple bounced on his head, and he got the theory of gravity. Um, th- th- those myths are fairly simplistic in in uh, how they try to represent sort of revolutionary ideas in science. They're, they're, they're not, you wouldn't call them a kind of a conspiracy. Uh, they're just a way of telescoping history in a kind of a nice, digestible, enticing way that emphasizes the sort of heroic nature of science. What's unique about psychoanalysis is that the, th- the theory demanded that the scientific hero freud actually make his discoveries in a way that's consistent with psychoanalytic theory so for example it makes much more sense in in the the, the myths about freud that he would discover infantile sexuality through a self-analysis because you in, in psychoanalytic theory, you you can't sort of believe in something like infantile sexuality unless you overcome your own personal repressions, um, which Freud is, was claimed he did through a self-analysis. And so the the theory itself becomes part of the explanation of its own history. Uh, that's not the case with you know Darwin's theory of of natural selection. Um, no, nobody's saying that Darwin discovered natural selection when there was a natural selection of ideas that went on in his own mind. Um, nobody's sort of going so far as to turn the theory around and put it in the head of the person and then make it explain everything that came out of that head. But that's what uh, the legends surrounding Freud had to do. They had to be consistent with psychoanaly- with Freud's own Life and pattern of thought as interpreted by psychoanalytic theory. Now, uh, where you go wrong with that is if, if psychoanalytic theory is wrong, well, then you're going to get a wrong version of history. It's a kind of a, 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 a Whiggish history gone wrong because the, 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 the version of, of the truth that's being served in this particular variant of Whiggish history is psychoanalytic theory. And it is, um, it is so problematic that it leads to a a faulty w- Wiggish history.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you think that psychoanalysis developed into a kind of religion rather than a new kind of science, which uh, Freud was aiming at, or at least said he aimed at?
2: Yeah, very good point. It it, it was very much like a religion by the by the nineteen twenties. Uh, once the decision was made to institutionalize the training of psychoanalysis through the training analysis, then the only way to become a psychoanalyst was to overcome your own repressions, which also means overcome all your objections to psychoanalytic theory and accept the doctrine as it is. And if you don't do that, then you can't be called a psychoanalyst and you won't get patient referrals and so forth. So uh, psychoanalysis became a lot like a, a religious cult in which you get indoctrinated into the the beliefs of the system, and that kind of indoctrination um, only worked because psycho, psychoanalytic training wasn't done within university structures, where you'd be much more subject to, you know, if you if you were in a psychology department in a major university and you tried to. Get away with this stuff. They, they'd say, "Well, that's where's the scientific method here? You couldn't do that." But the minute you have your own privatized institutes, um, well, you can do whatever you want. And so, the privatization of psychoanalysis, the, the rise of the training institutes, was a short-term mechanism for really boosting the growth of psychoanalysis. But it was a long-term disaster for the success of psychoanalysis as an enduring science.
1: Uh, Great. Which of Freud's qualities as a person and a scientist do you appreciate the most?
2: Well, there's absolutely no doubt that as a writer, uh, for example, when he's writing up these case histories, um, flawed as they may be, they are a fascinating read. he, he sort of manages to make every case history into a, a, a clever detective story. He was a brilliant writer. He won the Goethe Award for writing. Um, just a brilliant writer. And so there's a a very alluring quality to his work that had a huge impact on the the, the the spread and popularity of psychoanalysis, especially in the humanities. He's just a great read. And you have to sort of take your hat off to that. Um, if he could have coupled it with, with better scientific methods, well, we'd take our hat off even more. But, um, he had, um, he had a literary flair that was really quite, uh, impressive. I would also say that, um, you have to give Freud credit for the fact that he was willing to confront unpopular questions uh, that other people might have shied away from. Um, for example, in his in his day, to you know try to make your medical reputa- reputation by claiming that children are sexual and they fall in love with their mothers and fathers and and in a sexual way. Um, that's that's not something a, a faint hearted person is going to do. I mean, Freud was heavily criticized by many of his peers, including Kraft Eving and, and others, for what a lot of people thought were just sort of kooky, kooky, kooky unscientific, or um, even quasi heretical ideas. So he had a, a, a certain bravery. Uh, he described himself once as like a conquistador. And um, you know that's a sort of an admirable quality if it can be properly constrained. And of course, the problem was that it wasn't properly constrained. But you still have to admire Freud for for that. Um, so his his writings today are still a great read if you just want to read something and you don't care whether it's true or not. There's very the case histories and many of his other um, essays, his book The Interpretation of Dreams, they're good reads. So um, many of the qualities that made Freud successful, especially in the, in the humanities, um, are things that, that I think one has to give him credit for, e- even if the theories were, were unable to, to survive that, that literary brilliance.